You are listening to the teaching podcast of Praise Community Church in Mason City, Iowa. For more information about our church, please visit praisecc.org. Would you just invite impossible things to happen into your heart right now, into your life? I feel like I feel like it's really easy to lose hope for the things that are absolutely just impossible in this world. And we get sick in our hearts when we have hope deferred. And it's easier to just pretend like it'll never happen and and never even hope for it because it hurts. It hurts when we look at it and it's it's not happening like we hoped for. So would you just as like an act of of willingness to receive the impossible put your hands out like you're 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 waiting for this beautiful gift to to come and be laid into your hands God we receive expectant wonderful joyful blissful hope into our hearts right now for the absolutely impossible. We receive it for ourselves, we receive it for our loved ones. The hope that we, we have for the people in our lives, the places that we go, this church. God, we see you in our future. We, we, we refuse to see a future that you are not in because you said you've gone before us. So where it seems impossible, Lord, we say yes to you. We say yes to your hope. And we are going to joyfully, expectantly make space and make room in our lives, in our hearts, in this body, in this church, for you to come. We open up the spare bedroom of our hearts. (laughs) We open up every door in our hearts. You're welcome here. Yes. Lord, we, we bravely and courageously ask you to give us hope for stuff we can't see yet happening, for stuff that just seems like it will never happen. We ask you to come and soften us so that we can have hope once again and joy so we can dance in those rooms while we wait for you to do the absolutely impossible because that is who you are. You are the God of the impossible. And in our weakness, you make us strong. So we surrender all of that to you, Lord. We thank you, Jesus, for your spirit that can abide with us in that place and give us that everlasting hope, our living hope. And it's to you we say yes and amen. To your will and your desires for us. We love you. you. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Okay, God, if you want me to deny myself and take up my cross, you are going to have to send me someone who can help. Hey, are you reading the Bible? Yeah. 
That is so great. I was just praying to the Lord and asking him to send me someone who can help me carry my cross because it's so heavy, you know? No way. Yeah. That's exactly what I was reading about. You're kidding. No, maybe we're supposed to carry it together. That's a great idea. Awesome. Oh man, I'm Kat. Oh, Kat. Yeah. You mean like Raryl. Oh, actually it's short for Katerina, my oh. grandmother. She's Russian. Oh. Oh, I see. Oh, that's too bad. Oh. Um, you know, this isn't really going to work out. I'm sorry. It isn't? No. But why? Well, I'm American and you're Russian. Oh, no. I was talking about my grandmother. Not that it matters. Right. No, but... it does matter. It's in the bloodline. The Old Testament says you need to stick with your own kind. So maybe you should just go back to where you came from. <laughs> you almost got me. <laughs> Praise the Lord, I'm Brother Ryan. Uh, What's your name? Um, Drew. Nice to meet you, Brother Drew. See, so you have the Holy Scripture out there in front of you. Yep, I'm just reading about carrying my cross. <gasps> Brother, this is a divine appointment. I'm not comfortable. I was just reading about this earlier today. I think we're supposed to carry our crosses together. Thank no. you, Lord. Praise you, God. Thank you. No, no. Thank you, Lord. We can't, because obviously you don't go to the same church I do. Oh, what church do you go to? One that doesn't believe in divine appointments. <laughs> <laughs> I like your sense of humor, brother. Um, not humor, reverence. <laughs> right. Listen, maybe you should go run along and carry your cross in tongues or something. Really? All right, well, I'll be praying for you, brother. And I'll pray for your soul. What's going on? Hey, what are you reading? This is a Bible. Oh, I know what it is. I meant, what are you reading about? I'm sorry, uh, carrying my cross. Oh, I'm teaching a class about that at my church. Oh, good for you teaching a ladies class. It's nice. No, it, it's for anybody. Anybody can come, whole church. <laughs> Watch out, lightning coming. What do you mean by that? Look, you obviously don't read the Bible, okay? The Bible says that the women's place is in the home, cooking. So why don't you run along and make supper instead of wasting everyone's time trying to teach them something? What is your problem? Okay, you know what? The Bible also says that women should be silent, so zip it. Okay, you know, I'm just trying to help. And I don't associate with people who are spiritually blind. Come on, God. The least you can do is send the right person to help. Thank goodness, we don't think like that here, do we? Well, you know, um, those, those thoughts, those attitudes, those kinds of approaches, they, they come from somewhere. And I, I want to talk about um, that this morning, because while we don't probably think along those lines, we probably do have kind of some thoughts um, at times, or maybe we say things that really are not reflective of what the Scriptures truly teach. So let me just make a couple of disclaimers right up front here. What I want to talk about this morning, if you have been a believer for any length of time, what I want to talk to you about this morning is probably not anything that's really going to be like new news to you. As a matter of fact, it's going to probably be something uh, that you already know, but have just probably forgotten or just forget to kind of factor in. Now, how do I know that? Because I do this all the time as well. I know this but I forget it. I lose sight of it. I, I forget to factor it in. So I'm just, I'm preaching to me uh, as much as I am preaching to you um, this morning. 
Now, up until like the late 1800s, doctors and scientists believed in a concept that they called spontaneous generation. And this was this idea, this belief that living things could come from non-living things, disease specifically. So as long as doctors and scientists kind of believed that living things could come from non-living things, and again, speaking of disease here, they really saw no purpose or way uh, in trying to figure out how diseases were transmitted, how they could be prevented, or how they could be controlled. And so back in those days, whenever disease, pestilence kind of popped up in towns, cities, communities, or regions, just wiping out hundreds and thousands of people, it was just often assumed that it was just random, or, or what they kind of maybe termed God's will. And as a result of this kind of thinking, there was really no investigation, no need to investigate or study or learn how these things happen because it was just assumed because of spontaneous generation that living things came from non-living things that suddenly an organism could just appear out of nowhere for any reason and turn into, among other things, a very deadly disease. Now, just to show you how far we've really kind of come in terms of medical science and medical advancement, in the 17th century, it was once believed that in order to produce mice, you know, those little crawly, creepy creatures, rodents, in order to produce mice, all that was necessary was to take some sweaty clothing and some corn husk, some husk of wheat, and to put those in an open mouth jar. And 21 days later, it would produce mice. This is what they believed. Now, this kind of thing we know now attracts mice, but it does nothing to produce mice. But this is what they believed. And although such a concept really seems just outrageous and ludicrous to us, the concept of spontaneous generation, that living things could come from non-living things, made such concepts like that seem plausible and reasonable back then. It wasn't until 1859 that a young chemist, some of you may know this man, have studied him by the name of Louis Pasteur, finally and fully laid to rest this erroneous theory of spontaneous generation. And Pasteur was able to kind of confirm that there are invisible organisms that you cannot see. They're there. They're just not visible to the human eye actually were the culprits that carried and transmitted disease. That these invisible organisms, they could be carried by the wind, they could be projected through sneezing, they could be passed on by touching, 
They can live in food. They could even live on certain surfaces for a period of time. And Pasteur discovered that diseases were not just popping up randomly from non-living organisms. He discovered there was an invisible world that was penetrating and impacting the visible world. These disease-causing organisms, germs as they would later be called, were present in the air, but they were not created by the air. And these disease-causing organisms, they were everywhere. And they were impacting the visible, seen world. And with it, it carried the potential to destroy lives, families, to devastate communities, causing pestilence and plagues throughout the world. All because of something you could not see. And Louis Pasteur put forth this theory. They called it the, the germ theory of disease. And again, it was this idea that microorganisms could and did impact the seen world. And it was this little discovery that changed the way Pasteur and this whole community of doctors and scientists viewed and treated disease. And they began to become more aware of washing their hands, of, of separating the sick from the healthy and from quarantining people. Kind of sounds a little familiar, doesn't it? But interestingly, those outside this community, this little community of scientists and doctors, thought they were absolutely crazy. They looked at what Pasteur was saying, and they were saying to him, are you telling us that there are little things that we cannot see that are impacting and influencing the things we can see? You believe there are like these little invisible things kind of just floating in the air, landing on food, or, or just kind of transmitted by touching someone. That these little invisible things, these unseen things, are impacting and influencing our world? Seriously? Louis Pasteur said, absolutely. As a matter of fact, none of us today would dispute the fact that invisible, microscopic organisms have the power to create havoc in the world, right? We've seen that. We've witnessed that this last year. And many people today are germaphobes. And that's why so many people in our culture today are addicted or are becoming addicted to hand sanitizers, face masks, social distancing. Because we believe in an unseen, microscopic germ that can come and create havoc, widespread confusion, death, and destruction. And no one saw it coming. We believe in the power 
of the unseen. Then we look to the Bible. And the Bible introduces the presence of yet another unseen world. The Bible makes the same case that there is another invisible world different from the unseen world of germs and that this unseen world doesn't just impact us physically, it impacts us relationally. It impacts our thinking. It impacts our worldview. It impacts the way that we spend money. It impacts the way that we relate to one another, our relationships. It impacts our marriages. It impacts our families, how we do business. It impacts everything about us and everything around us. It's an invisible world that's there. We can't see it, and yet it impacts. It has the potential to influence every single thing we think and do. And like those in Pastor's time, there are those who will resist who will disagree, will push back on this biblical concept. Some of us will be like those who lived back in the 1800s. We'll laugh about this. We'll joke. We'll dismiss it. We'll say, you mean to tell me there is something that I can't see that impacts what I do, what I believe? You mean there's something I can't see and that it's kind of all around me? And, and that... This has the ability to land where it wants to land, to go where it wants to go, to do what it wants to do, and that this invisible world impacts and influences my world? That's difficult for a lot of people to believe. And that's what we're going to talk about for the next several weeks the same Bible that says, love one another. We love that part. It's Valentine's Day, right? We're into that. It's good. That same Bible that says, children, obey your parents. If you're a parent, we love that part of the Bible. The Bible that says, whatever you ask for in my name, that I will give to you. We love that part of the Bible. That same Bible also says there is an invisible world that has the potential to impact our visible world in catastrophic and destructive ways. There is an unseen world that impacts our world every single day. As a matter of fact, if, if you really understand what I'm talking about here this morning, it will begin to make sense a lot of what is happening in our world today especially in the political realm. And here's the thing. You don't need a microscope to see this invisible world. You don't even need a team of doctors or scientists to point this out to you. All most of us need is just the ability to look at our past. 
All you need to be able to see this invisible world is to look in a rear view mirror and to some of your past decisions. And when you do that, you'll kind of find yourself saying, how could I have been so blind? How could I have not seen that coming? How could I have been so foolish? How could I have thought at the time that was such a good decision and then it turns out to be one of the worst decisions I've ever made in my life? How does that happen? How could I have thought it was such a good idea at the time and it turned out to be a really bad idea in reality? How could I have been so deceived? How could things have gotten so messed up? How could things have gotten so twisted and distorted and confused in my mind? How did I think that that relationship was really going to go anywhere? How did I think that approach to finances was going to take me to that place that I thought was beneficial? Why did I push those closest to me away? Why couldn't I see that this was not just a pastime, but this was a pathway that led to a life, a habit, an addiction that I'm now going to battle against for the rest of my life? Why couldn't I see it in the moment? But then looking back on it, it's so clear to me. How could I have been so confused and so twisted in my thinking? How did I get so off track on this one? And oftentimes we find ourselves in those places, paying the price relationally, financially, and emotionally. And maybe you're here this morning and you don't need a rear view mirror. Maybe all you need is a mirror because you are in that very place this morning. Why do things get so twisted and turned around backwards in our thinking, in our hearts, our emotions? And it's real simple. And again, this isn't going to be new to a lot of you. We know this. We just forget it. And we really kind of forget to factor it in to what's going on around us. And the Bible has an answer for us. Because there is a twist. Because there's a twister. And I'm not talking about the board game. There is confusion because there is a confusor. There is deception. We fall prey to it because there is a deceiver. There is a distortion of truth that's just enough to get us into trouble, but not so much as to scare us away. And the ones behind this twist, the ones responsible for this deception, 
will never tip their hand. They'll never become too obvious for us to see. Otherwise, we'd see them, we'd recognize it for what it is, and we would run the other way. Jesus believed in an unseen, invisible world that impacts and influences our visible world. And his explanation for this is a bit unsettling. In John 8, Jesus kind of gives us some insight into his world view on this invisible, unseen world. So let me just kind of give you a little bit of background on John chapter 8. Jesus is having a conversation with some very, very hostile and some very uh, religious leaders. And by this time, Jesus is kind of far enough along in his public ministry uh, that included a lot of miracles. He's taught a lot of very, very profound uh, truths. And people who had heard Jesus, encountered him, maybe were uh, witnesses to or received uh, his miracles, they kind of liked what he was saying. They loved what he was doing. And they were beginning to kind of think based on what he did and, and what he said that he just might really truly be the Messiah. And these religious leaders uh, who were standing on the periphery and seeing everything Jesus was doing and saying, they don't like this. They don't like Jesus. They're very threatened by his ministry. They're very envious of, of the crowds that were following them. They once were following them, but they've left, and now they're following Jesus. And they became very envious of this. And all these religious leaders, ironically, they should have been the ones to be able to know exactly who Jesus was, that he was indeed the Messiah. And all they see that Jesus is doing and all they hear that Jesus is saying, and they are not happy about it. So in John 8, Jesus is kind of having this conversation, this dialogue with these very unsupportive and extremely hostile religious leaders. And Jesus kind of basically says to them, beginning in verse 31, and I'm kind of paraphrasing here, Jesus is kind of saying to them, look, after everything you've seen me do, after everything you've heard me say, you still do not recognize that I come from God. Why is that? And the religious leaders, they kind of respond to Jesus' statement, and they say, we don't need you to come from God because we have Moses, we have Abraham. If God wants to say anything to us, he can say that to us through Moses, through Abraham. We don't need you to tell us anything from God. We don't believe you are from God. And Jesus says, look, if you really were the sons of Abraham as you claim you were, if you were really truly devoted followers of God, he said, you would have recognized me because Moses knows who I am, Abraham knows who I am, God knows who I am. The problem is 
You religious leaders who should know, don't know who I am because you're really not followers of God. And so Jesus and these religious leaders, I mean, they really get into it. It's, it's pretty heated. And Jesus kind of just takes the gloves off and he kind of lets them know exactly why they were not able to recognize and embrace him. And why is it Jesus has done the things that he's done, said the things that he has said, that makes it so obvious and so plain that he is from God, and in the face of all this evidence, these religious leaders still do not recognize that he has come from the Father. So in John 8, 43, Jesus says, why can't you understand what I am saying? It's because you can't even hear me. Jesus is asking him, why is it that you can't understand what I say or who I am? Are you deaf? Then Jesus says in verse 44, he reveals the real reason. He says, for you are children of your father, the devil, and you love to do the evil things he does. In these two verses, Jesus makes a statement that kind of tips his hand regarding his worldview, how he sees the world. And Jesus asks, and then he answers his own question. Why do you not understand? Is it your hearing? He says, no, it has nothing to do with that. He said, it's primarily because your father is the devil. You got to understand here, Jesus is saying the reason you can't recognize the obvious is because you have been confused and deceived. There is something, or better yet, someone bigger at work here. There is an invisible influencer who is influencing your visible, seen world. It's impacting your understanding. It impacts the way you see and interact with me, with others, with yourself. It says, there is a deceiver among you, and he has sowed the seeds into you that in the face of overwhelming evidence, your thinking is just twisted enough. It's confused just enough to where you take what I say and what I do and you ascribe it to something other than God. And Jesus says the problem here is you have been influenced by, you have been impacted by, you've been deceived by, you're under the influence and the power of your father, the devil. And if that wasn't bad enough, Jesus goes on in verse 44, and he says, this devil, he was a murderer from the beginning. He has always hated the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, it is consistent with his character. 
for he is a liar and the father of lies. Now Jesus makes it very clear here. He's not using a figure of speech here. When he talks about the devil, he is telling us that he believed in and is describing, he's talking about a real individual, a he, an entity. Jesus believed the devil was actually a person. And again, that may be hard for some of you to believe, but this is what Jesus believed. And Jesus believed that the devil's ultimate grand agenda was to steal, to kill, and to destroy. John 10.10. 10. That his ultimate agenda was for the destruction of human life and that the means by which he would go about enacting that agenda and destroying human life would be through twisting, through deception, through distortion, through lies, and through twisting the truth. And this is so important. We have got to get this into our thinking. Or we're going to continue to be derailed in our relationships with one another and the ways we interact with one another, with our culture in this world. The devil, again, I want you to understand this, the devil is limited to using distortion. He's limited to using deception. He's limited to twisting the truth. He's limited in what he can do. I often say the devil's got a very, very small number of tools he can use. But the few that he has, he is so effective with. He uses that deception, that ability to distort, to twist the truth in very creative and in very, very subtle ways. What little freedom he has, he uses that freedom very effectively. And we see that right off the bat in the Garden of Eden, don't we? And the freedom and the power to deceive people that it results in the destruction, the chaos of human life, and all that is valuable to the human race. Relationships, marriages, friendships, families, communities, all of that is what Satan will use against. And his agenda, again, his methods, His approach is to destroy all of that, and he does that with just one simple tool. It's through deception. That's why Revelation 20, when it talks about the thousand-year millennial reign of Christ, and, and that's when Jesus will come, and uh, he'll rule upon the earth, and we'll rule with him. And, and this is following the marriage supper of the Lamb. And I want you to notice this. In verse one it says, I saw an angel come down from heaven having the key of the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand. And he laid hold on the dragon, that old serpent, which is the devil, 
and Satan and bound him a thousand years and cast him into the bottomless pit and shut him up and set a great seal upon him. Now get this, that he should deceive the nations no more. That's his power. He's limited in what he can do. He has the power to deceive the nations. And there will come a time where he will have that power no more. And then you skip over to verse 7. This is again after the thousand years has passed. And there it says, And when the thousand years are expired, Satan shall be loosed out of his prison and shall go out to deceive the nations. What he loses, he gets back. The agenda of the devil is to destroy everything that is sacred to human life, sacred to God, and the means by which he carries all of that out, the means by which he executes his plans is through deception, distortion, through twisting the truth. So he takes what he has. Takes what is so effective. Deception, distortion, twisting of the truth through very subtle and very gradual means. He influences the human mind. He influences our thinking to where we will come to a point where, where we, we actually think what is right is wrong and what is wrong is right. And, and Jesus links this temporary insanity, this temporary blindness to the devil. And for some of you, this may kind of help explain it. It might begin to give you some context. to the struggles and the difficulties in your lives. It may be something that we need to factor into our marriages with our spouses. This may be something we need to factor into as parents, into our relationship with our children. It may be something we really kind of need to factor into our workplace, our relationship with our boss, and our relationship with others. It may be something we need to take into consideration with ourselves and to those around us who have those moments of clarity. And then you have kind of this moment of insanity. Ever have that? Everything's going along great. You see life clearly. And then all of a sudden, you hit a place where, where you're kind of in a fog. You're in a daze. You don't see things as clearly as you once did. We all know that there are those moments where you're kind of just living life right. Things are going good. And then all of a sudden, you, you just hit a place. You hit a stage. You hit a season in life where you know the right thing that needs to be done. And you just go out and do the exact opposite. Ever done that? Ever had those moments in life? Jesus believed there is an invisible world that is influencing and it's impacting your, your visible and seen world. It's impacting your relationships. It's distorting your decisions. 
Jesus was not alone in this belief. And in his understanding of this invisible, unseen world. 30 years after Jesus said this, the Apostle Paul says in Ephesians 6, 11 through 12, he says, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. You know what Paul believed? The Apostle Paul who wrote most of the New Testament he believed there was a devil, Satan, a deceiver, a distorter, a twister of truth. And that this devil, this Satan, he has schemes, he has plans, he has purposes, he has a strategy. And Paul says it's really a very simple one. It's to take what is true and to twist it, and to distort it, and to deceive you enough into thinking what is right is really wrong, and what is wrong is really right. It's to take what is true and to twist it. It's to take what is evident and distort it. It's to take what is true and change it just enough to where it's not just true enough to harm us. So part of the devil's scheme is to take our appetites. Again, it's a good thing. God gave us our appetites. It's to take a good thing, our appetites, and then just twist it enough to where it becomes an addiction. He takes our desires. Again, God-given thing. God gave us good desires. But the scheme of the devil is to take those desires and then just twist it enough to distort it enough to where desire becomes greed. He takes something that is appealing and he twists it to where it can become jealousy. He takes self-awareness, something again that has the potential to be good and healthy and then he just twists it enough to where it becomes self-centeredness or self-absorption, insecurity. Part of the scheme of the enemy is to twist people's view of God. That they get angry at him. That when God does something we don't think God should do, or we don't expect God would do, we get angry at him. Because the truth has been twisted just enough that, that, that in those times, we're not going to run to God. We're going to run from God. And we're going to blame him for the consequences of our confusion, of our deception, of our twistedness. We're going to blame him for the consequences of our choices. So the devil has a scheme, has a plan, he has a purpose. And that plan is aimed at your destruction, my destruction, destruction of the human race. And he does that through deception. It's a system that never delivers on its promises. It's a system that turns a man's heart away from God and then blames him for the consequences. It's a system, a very effective system. He's been using it from the beginning 
of time there in the Garden of Eden. And it is a system that twists and distorts and deceives. The Apostle Paul continues on in verse 12. He says, for we wrestle not against flesh and blood. Oh, how we need to hear that today. Your fight is not against flesh and blood, Paul says, but against principalities, those unseen, invisible principalities, against powers, against the rulers of this dark world, against spiritual wickedness in high, and may I add, unseen places. Paul's saying our problem is not really with each other, And when we forget that, we just start going at each other. Our problem is a common enemy, and he is an unseen enemy. And we get so focused, I get so focused, and I can become so reactive to what we can see that we forget There is a whole unseen network influencing what is going on around us. Our enemy, the devil, he wants us to view one another, to interact with one another as the enemy. That is part of his scheme. And when we lose sight of who the real enemy is, we will misdirect our response and our attacks. So it's not just your spouse that's the problem. It's not just your children that's the problem. It's not just your boss or your coworker that is the problem. Paul says, make sure, be wise and factor in to whatever you're struggling with. And, and, and he says, it's not just what you see. He says, but there is an invisible, unseen world that is impacting what is seen and visible. He said, there's an unseen world that's impacting the seen world. He says, for our struggle, our battle is not against flesh and blood but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. There is a spiritual component to all of the struggles, all of the battles you are going through. There is a spiritual component to that. And when we fail to factor that in, we are setting ourselves up for failure. We are dealing with the father of lies. We're dealing with the master of distortion. We're dealing with the king of deception. Again, that may just sound like a bunch of science fiction to some of you. I forget that more often than I care to admit it. Just ask Janie. And it may be the reason some of you struggle with Christianity 
And it may even be the reason why you kind of distance yourself from God and, and from church and from other believers. But you've got to admit, it's true that at just in certain intersections in life where you kind of see something or you hear something or you read about something and you think to yourself, that's just evil. I mean, that's just pure evil. And you don't have any rational explanation for it. Remember back to 9-11. There were a group of Muslim men who spent years and years carefully planning to hijack passenger jets and fly them into the Twin Towers in New York City because they believed that would make God happy. They believed that there would be some kind of a great reward for them at the end of that destruction. Now to us, that, that's just plain wicked, evil, twisted. That's not just like, you know, somebody suddenly lost their temper and shot somebody. But we understand that. We don't condone it. But we can make sense of that. This isn't like somebody coming home and, and finding their spouse having an affair with somebody else and they become so angry and they shoot and kill that individual. Again, we're not for that, but we can understand that. But these men, they spent years and years planning, scheming horrific acts against innocent men and women. And the whole time, they're thinking everything they're doing is perfectly justifiable and makes perfect sense. And that God is, is happy about this. See, Jesus and, and the apostle Paul believed that behind all of that was an invisible, unseen world that was influencing and leading their thoughts and actions. The Holocaust. Now that, that took years of planning and scheming, and, and this was a very, very highly organized, you know, systematic, well-designed killing machine. And, and, and Thousands and thousands and thousands of people thought the best thing to do to, to make the world a better place was to round up Jewish people who had done nothing to us, take everything they owned, and systematically kill them. All because we believed, they believed, this was somehow going to make the world a better place. That we were going to create a better, more pure race of people. That's wicked. That's, that's diabolical. And the nation of Germany 
Now look back on that time in their history, and they're embarrassed. They ask themselves the question, how could we have allowed something so evil to happen? How could we have been so complicit, so okay with what we knew was going on at the time? What were we thinking Again, this wasn't just a momentary lapse of sanity. This was a long-term, systematic, organized implementation of pure evil. And Jesus and Paul believed that behind the Holocaust was this invisible, unseen world impacting and influencing the seen world. Over 61 million abortions in the United States since Roe v. Wade became law in 1973. That's about 1.3 million a year. For the last 48 years, the killing of innocent, unborn children. Why? Because some people think that this is going to help us accomplish some goals. It's going to help us accomplish some purposes of, of, you know, limiting the world's population. Some people look at this and think we're using up all of our natural resources. We've got to cut back on the number of people. Again, this isn't, I just lost my temper This is a systematic, planned annihilation of millions, of millions, of millions of innocent, unborn babies. Yet there's a group of people out there, the the providers, the encouragers of all of this, To them, this makes perfect sense. It seems, in light of all that is going on, the right, sensible thing to do. Child pornography, sex trafficking, drug cartels, human slavery, all of this ends up in the destruction of human life. How does anyone get that confused, that deceived, that distorted, that twisted. I can't even begin to understand that, and I'm guessing many of you can't either. That's why when I fall back on my fundamental belief that Jesus is who he says he was, that he really was sent to us from God, and whether I understand it all or I can explain it all, I'll lean into his explanation of the world around me rather than just lean on my own understanding or the actions of others. Over 2,000 years ago, Jesus and the Apostle Paul, if you remember that scene in The Wizard of Oz where Toto goes and he pulls back the curtain. Jesus and Paul, 2,000 years ago, they kind of pulled back the curtain and they revealed to you and me the real culprit behind all of this. 
There is an invisible, unseen world that is out to destroy much of the sacredness of human life as possible. And the means of the enemy to do that is through distortion, deception, through twisting, through, through making things that, that are right look wrong and things that are wrong look right. And Jesus and Paul did this because their concern, their hope for us is that our reality wouldn't get so twisted, so distorted, that our view of one another wouldn't get so confused, that our view of marriage, our raising of kids, our view of politics wouldn't get so twisted and so confused that we would make decisions that would result in the destruction and demise of human life. Jesus said, your enemy came to steal, kill, and destroy, but I have come to give you life and to give it in abundance. Those are the two worldviews. Those are the two hands at play in our human drama today. So for the next couple of weeks, we're going to look at some of the major twists that are occurring in our culture today. We're going to ask God through his word, through his grace, that he would help us to see as he sees, to understand as he understands, to react as he would react. Because things are not always as they appear to be because we live in a world that's corrupted, deceived, and twisted. I invite you just to stand this morning and, and we're gonna pray. What I wanna pray this morning, I, I just wanna pray just a simple prayer that as you kinda go through your week this week, that God would just kinda begin to open your eyes if he hasn't yet, or maybe to open your eyes more fully that as you're going through your week, that there would maybe come those moments where God would begin to maybe kind of remind you that, that what you're going through right now, whether that's a, a, a situation uh, with a coworker, whether it's with somebody in your family, whether it's somebody you just meet on the street that you don't even know, and that you would realize that, that there are some things at work here there may be some things at work in this person that you know or don't know. There, there may be some things at work in this situation and in this discussion that maybe are kind of invisible. They're unseen. There's some things that are kind of happening in the background. That, that God would maybe use that as an opportunity to open your eyes and to remind you that whatever you're going through uh, in this week, to factor in that while there are things that you can see, there are things that are visible to you, that there are also things, many things, that are unseen and invisible, and that it is those things that are trying to distort, that are trying to twist, that are trying to deceive you. And that, that, again, God would just begin to open your eyes to see what he sees, to hear what he hears, to do what he would do. So, Father, this morning, we just, we come to you. And first of all, God, we just, again, we, we confess our need for you.
Because God, I believe every one of us in this room fall prey to that deception, that distortion, that twisting of the truth all the time. God, we repent for those times where we're reacting to visible, seeing people and situations, and we have forgotten and we have not factored in the unseen, invisible world that is influencing and impacting the things that are happening. Father, we repent that we have failed to factor that in. We repent that we have failed to acknowledge that, to know that there is a deceiver, a twister, and that oftentimes we're, we're played and we're duped by that. And we have failed to acknowledge and to lean into and to trust that there is truth, that there is a way, there is life that leads to abundance. And Father, we want to yield. We want to give ourselves. We want to surrender ourselves to you. So that God, in every situation, every circumstance, God, that we would begin to see what you see, to hear what you hear, to do what you would do. So God, we just ask that you would open the eyes of our heart, open the eyes of our understanding. That we would know there is the father of lies, but there is also the father of all truth. That there is someone who is out to destroy us, but there is also one who is able to give us life and to give it to us in abundance. So God, help us to look to you, to trust you, to acknowledge you, to represent you in all that we say and do. That, God, we would be promoting the kingdom of God. And that in promoting the kingdom of God, we would be pushing back against the kingdom of darkness. Yes. So, Father, again, we just ask, Lord, that you would open our eyes. Give us understanding Father, we again thank you for Jesus, that he is the way, the truth, and the life, and that he has come to give us that life in abundance. And we thank you for that. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You are listening to the teaching podcast of Praise Community Church in Mason City, Iowa. For more information about our church, please visit praisecc.org. Community Church, including gathering times and events, please visit us at praisecc.org.